Well, thank you, worship team. Thank you for joining us this morning here or online. Take your Bibles. That's what we do here. Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings 17, or grab the Bible in front of you in the uh, rack there and go to page 306, 306. The passage this morning that we're looking at, strangely this week, made me think of the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Kind of a strange thought in August, I know. The main character, Scrooge, is this miserly and miserable businessman who refuses to participate in in Christmas. He turns down opportunities to be generous with his abundant wealth. He turns down an invitation to be with relatives to celebrate Christmas Day. And only grudgingly does he even let off his faithful employee, Bob Cratchit, to go home and spend time with his family. He's not at all about Christmas. Then that night, he is visited by three ghosts. No, I don't believe in ghosts. But the uh, ghost of Christmas past occurs, or reveals himself first and shows Scrooge his childhood, innocent, and difficult past. Shows him his lost love, the one who left him because she knew he would never overcome his love of money. Ghost of Christmas Present shows him the people on that Christmas day who are far less privileged than him, who are nonetheless filled with joy and celebration. But the most telling is the ghost of Christmas future. Scrooge sees himself as he dies unmourned, unmissed, his wealth either stolen or distributed to others. And Scrooge wakes up a transformed man and becomes this generous, joyful man. We never get that opportunity in real life to see how our whole life will play out from birth to death and kind of what results from being this way or that way. But what if we could? What if actually we had a, had a way to, to, to see that living with these priorities brings this result, living with these priorities, maybe the things that we are presently really focused on bring these results and we could see the seasons of our life that way. What if we could? We, we can't. But I think that's why we have the scriptures to show us these full-scale stories of what leads to what, and especially today as we, as we come to the end of the, of the story of the kingdom of Israel, the northern part. We get really what is a, a post-mortem of what happened to them. It begins with the, with the account of its last king, Hosea, But really the point is going to be verses 7 through 23 that show us this is what happens when you see the whole scale of cause and effect of what what lives result when we reject God's warning. And really, um, you know, it's too late for Israel to wake up, but not for us. We're here today and looking at God's word. So the first six verses tell the story of Hosea in rather brief form. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, that's the wicked king we studied last week from the southern kingdom, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel to the north in Samaria, the capital, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So actually he wasn't their worst king. They were all evil, but he wasn't as bad. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser of Assyria seized him, the king, and put him in prison. The king of Assyria then invaded the entire land marched against Samaria, the capital, laid siege to it for three years. 
in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala and in Gozan on the Haber River and in the towns of the Medes. And that's it for Israel. We've been studying their 200-year history uh, throughout this, this book, and uh, suddenly it's, it's over. Back in verse 1, Ahaz is ruling in Judah. We saw him. Hosea is in Israel. We've kind of been, in the book of 2 Kings, hopscotching between the northern and the southern. It's, it's really hard to keep them straight. But just kind of a, a review of Israel's history as a kingdom. By kingdom, it means while Israel was led by kings. They started out united. Uh, There was just one kingdom from 1040 to 930 BC, and we have Saul, David, and Solomon who each reigned over the united Israel. We find those uh, stories and events in 1 and 2 Samuel and and then to 1 Kings. Then Solomon's son Rehoboam uh, was a wicked man, and the nation split, and Jeroboam took 10 of the tribes, the northern 10 tribes, then called Israel from then on. And of the north, there were 19 bad kings, of which Hosea, what we just read, is the last. Meanwhile, Judah is the name of the dominant of the two southern tribes. And they had some good kings, 12 bad, but eight good or mostly good kings. And we still have some studies ahead of some of those better kings. 722 is the date for what we just read in verses 5 and and 6, because that's historically when it happened. 722 B.C., Assyria takes the nation of Israel and deports many or most of them away. So it's not until 586 that Judah suffers a very identical or similar trait uh, uh, fate. And uh, what happens here, though, is Assyria deports these ten tribes. They never have a return. They don't return. They get disseminated all over the place. And that's kind of the big story of Israel that we're kind of dropping in here on 722 B.C. So there's no more kings of the north. It's over. After 200 plus years of God's gracious patience to them, sending them prophets like Elijah and Elisha and even last week a lesser-known prophet, Oded, to, to warn them and, and, and teach them. They, they resist, and uh, this tells briefly the political story then in verse 3. Shalmaneser uh, is the king of Assyria. Last week we saw how his dad, Tiglath-Pileser, had uh, fought against Judah to the south and uh, Uh, They had also threatened Israel to the north under the previous administration of Pekah, but uh, they didn't conquer Israel, but now Shalmaneser, the son, attacks and does conquer them. And the reason he attacks is because uh, King Hosea quit paying the bills, uh, quit quit sending in the the money to the mob, and uh, tried to get an alliance, because that's what nations did. If If you couldn't uh, face your foe, he's bigger than you, you've got to go find someone who can join with you, and maybe that alliance you can win, but Egypt wasn't uh, that, that alliance that he hoped for, and so the superior forces of Assyria just come in and actually capture Samaria, and uh, particularly first capture the king. It doesn't say in verse uh, uh, 4 what happens to Hosea, it just puts him in prison, uh, we assume he's probably then part of the deportation of verses 5 and 6. We don't know how much of the population went, but you get the impression like most of these hundreds of thousands of the population of Israel are marched off. It's amazing how little ink is spent to tell this story, which we know would be filled with all kinds of human tragedy. For hundreds of thousands of people whose ancestors have lived there for some 700 years to be, to be taken out of their homes, lined up, men, women, and children, marched off and deported. It doesn't even speak of any real uh, massacre or death. They just take all the people out. And they just, simple facts, verses 5 and 6, that bring an ending to this whole 200-plus year span of time. Just the facts, because the main point is not the details of what happened, but the cause of what happened. 
And so we really have now in verses 7 to 23 the main point of this chapter, which is Israel's post-mortem or the autopsy report spiritually of what happened. Notice the first line of verse 7. All this took place because. Because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of Egypt. That's 700-year history. From under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, they worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They thought up new, terrible stuff. The the Israelites secretly, verse 9, had done things against the Lord, the God, that was not right. And from watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. Bottom line, they worshipped idols. Though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. Command number one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before you. And essentially that's what this whole chapter is saying. They kept doing that in every form imaginable. So the first issue of why God punished Israel's unrepentant continual sin is that he had shown them his grace by delivering them from Egypt and they are ungrateful for the grace of God. I've, uh, in this section, I've underlined three uh, key lines that tell us what God did. Whenever you're reading scripture and you kind of wonder, well, what's kind of the main thing? Sometimes we're really drawn to what the people did, and there's a lot about what the people did. But if you really want to know why scripture is there, it's to help us know what God does. Because that's how we're going to know. Uh, what's really meant for us is, what do we learn about God here? So, in verse 7, I've underlined this phrase, the Lord their God who had brought them out of Egypt. The Lord their God brought them out. It's his grace. And then jump to verse 13, the Lord warned Israel and Judah, verse 14, but they would not listen. The Lord warned. So the Lord brought them out of Egypt, showing them all this grace to deliver them. And then when they sinned, he warned them, but they would not listen. And thirdly, I've underlined in verse 18, so the Lord was angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. He brought them out. He warned them. He disciplined them when they did not respond to his warning. Earlier, Pastor Seth uh, read the passage in Romans 15.4. Oh, we'll get here in just a moment. Here's where they went, sorry. Uh, This is the map of Israel that we've shown throughout our, our study of their history. We're looking at Israel, the northern kingdom. Zooming out, here's where they went. They went all over into the now territory of Assyria, and they are... Kind of all stuck there now. The passage that uh, Seth read before kind of really tells us why we should study the Old Testament. So there's a New Testament passage saying, for everything that was written in the past, your Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So there is, hope is a positive word. Hope is, is the fact that, that you have a good future. So we were, But most of the stories of the Old Testament are really kind of like this. They, they kind of end up in a lot of spiritual spirals downward and failures. And, but yet the purpose of anything you read that's negative in the Old Testament is something very positive so that we would have hope because we won't repeat what they did. Charles Dickens wrote The Christmas Carol, we assume, to inspire people to care more about people than money. But he's got to tell a story about a stingy guy named Scrooge to get to that point. And and the thing that, that Paul is saying to the Romans here is that we have this Old Testament that's filled with some of these failures of people who did not endure. In other words, they did not continue when something got rough in their life. They did not keep following the Lord. But he says, you can be encouraged and you don't have to go that way. And so by your endurance, you can have a positive future. You have hope. I don't know what negative thing you might be dealing with that you bear some responsibility for this morning. 
We all are wrestling with sin. That's part of the human condition, right? Uh, it could be a, a habit or an attitude or something, and it's stealing your joy. Or it's hurting someone close. Or it's hurting you emotionally. It's hurting you um, maybe physically. A lot of, a lot of addictions are, are affecting us that way. It might be wrecking a really important relationship or undermining it. So you're struggling. And if we hear God's voice of warning today, you've got to realize that's not a negative. That's the God who wants to give you hope. And so he's, he's showing you something, and you know, we, we're getting this view that you know, we're some way midway in life. You're here, right? So we're somewhere here. He says, here's a warning so that this to here can have more spiritual hope for you. Back in verse 7, it starts with understanding the grace of God. The Lord brought them out of Egypt. God loved Israel. Seventy people go into Egypt in the time of Joseph, the nation grows over a 400-year span to 2 million people who are now enslaved by Pharaoh, but God delivered them, sent them Moses, the deliverer, who brings these 10 plagues of God upon Pharaoh, sparing Israel, especially the final one where, where God's angel is going to come and kill the firstborn of everyone in the land of Egypt. But he tells the Israelites, just take some of the blood of the Passover lamb and put it on the doorpost, and I won't kill your oldest son and so they go out and they're they're alive and they are free and they are released and God opens the Red Sea and they walk through and they get into the wilderness and start complaining and he gives them food he gives them manna water from the rock everything they could ever imagine and his plan is to take those people all the way to uh, the promised land where he's going to give them all free real estate real estate property complete with houses and farms and vineyards and it's all about God's grace. But what happened? They practiced the, the evil of the nations that God had driven out. They worshipped every possible idol. And their real failure was a failure to respond to the grace of God in their life. And so the real solution, the endurance that we need to learn so we have hope, is to respond to the grace of God with, with gratitude. What's he done for you? We think of the cross. Hopefully every week we think of the cross as we come here and realize we are worshiping because Jesus Christ has called us together as a church, his body redeemed by his blood. And we can know for sure that if, 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 if we have placed our faith in Christ and we don't live till next Sunday to be back here, that we will be immediately in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we know we have that assurance. That's grace. And then I bet you you can just like the old hymn says, count a lot of blessings of God's grace from that time when you came to understand and put your faith in Christ until today, sitting here in August, that there has been the evidence of the grace of God over and over. And so the issue here is, what has God done for you by His grace? And are you responding by imitating Him and His holiness or imitating the world? Verse 9 says they secretly did things. Well, there's no secrets from God. The, the, that's the only place this Hebrew term is used, and it probably means more like hypocritically, which is secret, because hypocritically means that we, we act one way in public, but another way in private. So in other words, they would continue uh, for many years throughout that. It's, it's recounting 700 years of history. So there's a lot of years of going to the tabernacle, and they kept doing the, the things that the law said. But what's going on in their heart? They're really worshiping all these other false gods that are listed there. And the Lord had said, verse 12, you shall not do this. So God warned them. That's what God does when we sin, is he... His voice comes through one way or another to warn us of something. And that's what verses 13 through 17 are telling us. The Lord warned Israel and Judah. Now he's taking in both parts. Through his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. So there, there were these 
voices in your life, the prophets, but, verse 14, they would not listen and they were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. Probably referring to the first generation of Israel coming out that did not believe and make it to the promised land. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook the command of the Lord their God, made for themselves two idols. Remember that? Jeroboam, the first king of the divided kingdom. Now he's gone from the time of Moses to the time of the kingdom. When, when Jeroboam broke off with the ten tribes, made for themselves two idols, the golden calves, in the shape of calves, and the Asherah pole, they bowed down to all the starry host, and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire the ultimate. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the, the, the list of, of what all is wrong in this autopsy is endless and frankly repetitive of how they had uh, treated the Lord. So King Jeroboam, when he split the nation, knew that the people to the north were inclined to go to worship in the south, Jerusalem, that's where the temple of God was. That was the right place. So Jeroboam made up his own religion that was similar to the laws of the Old Testament. He kept a lot of those things, but didn't want them to go to the temple. So he made these two idols, the golden calves, one north in Dan, one south in Bethel, and said, hey, these are the gods that took you out of Egypt. And then he uh, appointed priests, not necessarily of, of the tribe of Levi at all, but rather he just made up his priests and he made up some, some new festivals and just dis disregarded the word of God. That's all it takes is to disregard the word of God. So they end up not just worshiping a similar Old Testament thing, but now they're, what, the starry host? They're worshiping the stars. Many people did. Many people do. Don't get into astrology. Astronomy, good. <laughs> astrology, not so. The heavens declare the glory of God. You look out that amazing sky in the solar system and start to understand something of what's going on. You go, wow, God is amazing. On the other hand, your interest in astrology and your horoscope is pagan idolatry. Your sign means nothing. It's an entry point, a soft entry point into evil as old as the Old Testament. The Asherah and the Baal, these are the male and female versions of the same cult. Uh, Asherah, female, and Baal is the male god. Uh, they're the gods and goddesses of fertility, productivity, which really amounts to wealth. In other words, if you're an Israelite during all those centuries and you really wanted to be doing better financially, uh, you wanted your, your livestock to produce, you wanted your fields to produce, you wanted to have a lot of kids to farm the land. That you, so what you wanted was fertility is a clear Satan, target for Satan's lie about Baal and Asherah because these gods were supposed to do that for you. Wealth is still the most common idol everywhere. Uh, Christians included will um, seemingly rationalize about anything to give up what God's will would be or opportunities that God has for them by pursuing more money. Sacrifice their children in the fire. Practice divination. I think those are connected. They're, they're often found back to back that there is an occultic a demonic involvement to bring someone to the place of killing their own children. Sounds impossible. And yet, as we can read in our newspaper or news feed, people go, when you see people going ballistic, demanding the right to kill their own children, you have to see that there is a, an involvement of our spiritual enemy. The key issue is that God warned them through the prophets, verse 13, 
they wouldn't listen. Verse 14. We are all sinners, and we will all be struggling throughout life with some forms of sin. Bottom line, the question is, are we teachable? Are we correctable? Do we heed warnings? Really, the core trait is, are we humble so that we invite and embrace God's correction in our life? There's a lot of ways God speaks to us. I'd like us to think through some of those um, voices that God uses to warn us. The first is hopefully the most obvious, and this is the way we should always be learning from God himself. We have the Holy Spirit of God within us. We have the Word of God printed for us. So with his Word and his Spirit, he can alert and warn us over and over again. I hope that's part of your daily life. This is how correction is supposed to happen in a believer's life. But God also then uses other voices that will point us actually back to this number one. We'll list seven of them. But the, the most obvious one, if you're married, is your spouse. Because our spouse knows our sin struggles. We can hear it in their words. We see it sometimes in their hurt. And we have to realize that God has us married. What we signed up for is to hear their voice in our life. Because they will know us the best. Or as Gary Thomas wrote in Sacred Marriage, what if God's will for marriage was not to make us happy, but to make us holy? So, know what you signed up for and invite and embrace that your spouse will be that person. Your children, likewise, who know our sins, we can see it in their words and hurts, but they don't usually express it until they express it. And it all comes tumbling out sometimes. Or there's the voice of pastors or leaders or mentors in your life, uh, hopefully teaching, uh, but also personal conversations. Are you someone who is um, teachable in person, or would your, your post-mortem say that you would not listen because you got it all figured out? Godly friends. I hope you have godly friends. They know you, they pray for you, and if they're really good friends, and they have the... the, the the relationship with you, they may be good enough friends to actually confront you and say, you know what, I just want to make an observation. Are you teachable or are you defensive and do you then you know, distance yourself from someone like that? There's the voice of unbelievers, work, school, community. When you run into conflicts, uh, do you realize that sometimes that's a voice pointing to you? When there's a lot of tension and anger going on, do you hear God's voice that way? I have a little saying that I've mentioned before on my desk posted there. It says, the common denominator in every relationship problem I have is me. Ever think about that? The final voice is really what we see in 2 Kings 17, its consequences. How's that working for you? In other words, if we, if we refuse the prophets in our life, back there in verses 13, if we're stiff-necked, verse 14, we eventually will face the consequences, the results. This is what this kind of priorities will lead us to. So are we listening to the voices? The voices God has in your life are there because he loves you. Hebrews 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. It's a New Testament passage quoting uh, Psalm 95, which is referring to that first season of Israel's release from Egypt, and they would not listen. They rebelled. Were they not all those, Moses? Uh, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? Two million people are delivered from Egypt, shown the grace of God. How many of them entered the promised land out of two million? Two, Joshua and Caleb. That's why they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. All of them died. The ones who he de delivered were not given the privilege of going into the promised land because of their rebellion. 
the odds aren't great. Likewise, in the time of the kings, uh, going back into 1 Kings, what we just read about in verses 5 and 6 was prophesied 200 years earlier when Jeroboam was that first king splitting the nation. And Ahijah, God's prophet, came to Jeroboam's wife and said, he, God, will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River. That's this event right here. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. So now it was all, it was all done. You, you couldn't rewind it anymore. The, the line had been crossed. So if God has voices in your life speaking to you, you realize it's because he loves you seriously, but he will also discipline seriously. Ultimately, verse 17, they sold themselves to do evil. That's the idea of giving yourself completely over to it. If, if, you know, if a politician sells himself out to some what, special interest group, it means, hey, I'm all in with you, or I'm all in with the politician. I'm, I'm going to be totally loyal to you. That's what Israel did. They became totally loyal to evil. There was, just, there was nothing held back anymore. So verse 7, God brought them out. Verse 13, the Lord warned them. They didn't listen. Now verses 18 to 23, God was angry with their sin, so he deported them. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the command of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. We've seen that a couple of times in recent chapters. Therefore, Verse 20, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had thrust them from his presence. So verse 18 says he removed them. It's a word in the Hebrew language literally for picking something up. And then in verse 20, the word thrust is the word throw. So it's like a very literal picture of you pick something up and you throw it away. Like a piece of trash, you pick it up and you throw it away. But this, it was, it was too late. Too late to wake up, and so they were thrust. And even Judah, Judah was off the hook for now because they would live to, as a nation, they would exist as a nation for another 140 years while Assyria deported the northern tribes never to return. Uh, the, the tribe of Judah, just mentioned kind of in passing here, would be deported to Babylon 140 years later, but many of them would return, and that we studied not terrible long ago, the book of Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are the grace of God in bringing back many of them to, to rebuild the, the walls and the temple of, of Jerusalem. But God had rejected them and given them into the hands of plunder because it was too late and they had rejected his warnings. That's basically the, the post-mortem report. God delivered, God warned, and then God disciplined. So what happened back in the land? So we don't get to really find out what all happens. We find out some things. The book of Esther is a little bit of that uh, for, the, for the, uh, those that went from Babylon. But the the book of, we don't know what happened to those who went to Assyria, but what about those who were still in the land? Because not everybody was gone. It seemed like the majority were. What's going to happen to this land? God had, God had blessed this land. This was his promised land. God cares about the land he promised to Abraham. And now these verses tell us what happened in that land. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. So if you're a conquering nation and your way of conquest is to deport people, you can't just let the nation, the land that you took, go to weeds because you want it to be productive because you want it to help send you money. Right? So he deported them to those areas, but then he imports others from these areas back in, and so you have a population base. The other value of this strategically is that uh, Assyria wanted to keep nations conquered, whom they had conquered, 
So by deporting most of them, now you don't have anybody to rebel, especially if you've taken the leadership for the most part. But the other way is to now import many others that you've conquered elsewhere, make them live there. They don't even have the same language. They are culturally, racially, everything's different. And they're not going to be able to coordinate any kind of rebellion against the power that has just conquered them. So that's all done. He imports them, verse 24. But what does that produce? Verse 25, it creates a problem. When they first lived there, they, that is, people imported, did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people don't know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Almost makes us think, oh, that'll work. Notice, first of all, how the king of Assyria thinks about religion. There's the God of that land, because he's a polytheist. He's, he believes in many gods. Uh, we need to appease that God. He's kind of pesky, and he's sending these lions, so we, gotta, we have to do something. Uh, he's objecting, and, and I guess in that sense he was right. He was objecting because there is one God who created the universe, who rules the entire globe, not one little nation, and he is the God of all things, and he is the one who deserves all worship. So yes, he objected, and he had sent the lions to draw attention in the hearts of these pagans about his preeminence over all things. But they didn't get that. Instead, they decided to send a priest back. The Assyrian solution, send back a priest to teach them how they, with their god, little g, is supposed to, supposed to worship. And so he came to live in Bethel. Does Bethel ring a bell? Bethel, it's a little bit of a red flag because uh, Bethel is where one of those golden calves was still standing. And in fact, I think we should assume there's nothing godly about this priest they sent back at all. Whatever worship was happening in northern Israel at this point was a mix of idolatry with some of these similar Old Testament practices that had perpetuated since Jeroboam made up his own version of the Old Testament law. He had made up his own priests, set up his own festivals, right? So, so there was really nothing good or godly or holy for him to come in and teach. It was a mix of idolatry and biblical law. Mixing religious ideas is called syncretism. Syncretism, you throw it all together. It's what, it's what a huge chunk of Americans believe when they answer a poll question that says, yes, I believe in God. What they, really, what they really are is syncretists. They have their own little version of what religion is. They've taken a little bit from this and a little bit from that and a little bit from, from Christianity, and they put it in a spiritual blender, throw it all together, and they have conversations in a coffee shop about religion that start with the words, I think, and they tell you what they think. And everybody nods and applauds because we, we yeah, that's good. I'm glad that, that works for you. Good, good. That, that, that helps you. The Jewish priest that came brought home, brought no revival, no repentance is told of here. So verse 29 tells us how it actually came out. Nevertheless, each nation or national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria, the Jews, had made at the high places. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, that's the name of a god. The men of Cuthah made Nurgle, that's a goddess, a god. Um, the men of Hamath made Ashima, the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Servavites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of the Servavim. Oh, okay. So the priest didn't teach them much. Oh, but it seems that something happened, and verse 32 and verse 33 is actually considered by some scholars to be biblical sarcasm. 
because this, this doesn't actually work. They, quote, worship the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to associate to, uh, to officiate for them as priests in the shrine to the high places. They worship the Lord, quote-unquote, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations which they, from which they had been brought. And so the reality is, verse 34, the sarcasm is over. To this day, the priests, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor the decrees. So they said, okay, okay, well, the priest came and told us some of the stuff we should do in this country, so let's do a little bit of this and, and a little bit of that. So they were syncretists as well, but really what they were is idolaters. So here's kind of an interesting list of some of these things, a little bit that we know about them. Uh, Babylon people that came over, they had this god who is uh, in the form of a hen, so it's a chicken goddess. And, and Katha had Nurgle, who was the god of the underworld. I'm sure he was a positive influence. Hamath had Ashima, a goddess that perhaps was depicted as a sheep, the Nibhas dog goddess, and Tartak, the god of darkness, the Avites worshipped, and the Servavites burned children in the fire because they were worshipping this king and queen uh, deity, deity that's depicted as demonic-looking donkeys. So that's who they really were in the kingdom of darkness. And yet it says they, they, they worship the Lord and this. Does that seem to fit together? It doesn't. But you see, the thing is, in syncretism, in all false worship, is people do what they think works for them. People will try any kind of worship that they think works. Well, maybe it'll help. So I'll kind of get a dash of this, and I'm sad that, to think that sometimes Christians get involved in adding pagan practices to what we say is our belief in the Word of God. So Christians sometimes hang little crystals in their uh, car off the mirror because, you know, maybe somehow it creates some kind of a positive energy. Put a little cherub someplace for good luck. In in some of the groups I'm on, uh, motorcycle touring groups, you have, you have guys in their 60s like me who are dead serious that they will, when they get a new bike, they'll put a little spirit bell that they hang from the bottom of their motorcycle. Some of you have heard of it. Gremlin bells, they're called uh, guardian bells, spirit bells. And so you see some uh, selling their bike, and it says, you know, you already got the spirit bell on it. It's mounted down below there. Just a little bell. just dingles, and it keeps you safe. Or someone reminded me, uh, last night after the service of a practice uh, that some have of when they're trying to sell a house, you take a little statue of St. Joseph, turn it upside down and bury it, and that helps you sell your house. If it helps, you know, that's what religion is for, to help you, right? No, we worship the one God who made all things and we exist for his glory and his benefit not he for ours it is by his grace that those who love and serve him he does hear and he does help but we have to get over the the sense of manipulation that characterizes religion everywhere mix in a little of this a little of that Worship of gods and goddesses, spirits, has wormed its way into our culture for decades. The entertainment culture, kids' entertainment culture especially, Disney and others have forever taught that there are spirits in the trees, spirits in the animals. It's basic animism. That's a pagan belief that inanimate objects and animal creatures have are animated or they have life, supernatural spirit in them. Instead of being a created, created thing of God, that they have spirits. You ever wonder why, like the idol list we just showed, or totem poles are all about animals that have these spirits. It's a pagan belief of animism. When our missionaries, including our missionaries right now in, in various countries, when they go into a tribal group, what they always encounter is the 
the foundational belief in animism that, that the spirits are doing all these things and, and they, first, they have to overcome it with the gospel and the word of God that God alone is God. The same battle is being waged there as now really on our own turf in America where animism is merged with all kinds of... In Christian minds, unfortunately, sometimes maybe entertainment culture or something else. They worship the Lord, they said, but also their own, you know, the donkey god, the chicken god, the, donkey, uh, the dog god, those things. When our family, uh, some years ago, when the kids were younger, we took them all down to visit some missionaries that we were supporting in Mexico. And so we uh, drove out to a, uh, an Indian village in western Mexico, Mycoba. And um, interestingly, we're thinking, well, you know, the missionaries are here, but there's churches there's churches and there's statues and crucifixes and priests. But the missionaries who were there said, yeah. But as you get to know the people, they're all still worshiping in all the same old pagan ways, animism, spirit culture. And they just kind of, everybody throws it all together. And so don't be surprised that in our culture and in the, your reading and your friends and maybe your own thinking. You've been thinking of religion as kind of a buffet line. Satan loves the blunder approach to religion because it will obscure the reality of the singular God of the universe who sent his only son to be the only way to salvation because he is God and he is God alone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. So, as verse 34 kind of sarcastically claimed, the people tried to do both. We know they really couldn't. So they persisted, verse 34, in their former practices, neither worshiping the Lord nor adhering to his decrees and commands, uh, verses 34, 35, 36, they, they, they all are quoting actually from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in different little phrases. You must be careful, verse 7, to keep the decrees and ordinance he wrote for you. Do not forget the covenant, verse 38. Verse 39, rather worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. You don't manipulate him, but you worship him alone, and you'll be amazed at how God works in your life to deliver you. Verse 40. But they would not listen, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were actually serving their idols. And to this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Uh, there's a reference to whoever was writing Second Kings, perhaps someone like Ezra, some 200 years later, who compiled First Second Kings, put it all together, and said, you know what, this is still happening it was still happening in the time of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see references to the Samaritans. Where did the Samaritans come from? This is the background of the Samaritans. Because their capital was Samaria, that middle region of what the New Testament would refer to as Israel. The middle region is called Samaria because you now had this amalgamation of all these different beliefs, this syncretism. And Jesus in John 4, uh, by the way, Jesus loves Samaritans and so the same thing. We don't, we don't dislike or hate anyone who is deceived by the enemy. We love them. And Jesus went to the Samaritans. Jesus didn't avoid the Samaritans. He went to that woman who was at the well and had this conversation with her. And she thought, well, we should probably have a little bit of this debate about syncretism or something. And so she says, now, you know, our people, we say we should worship here in, 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 in Samaria, but you people say down in Jerusalem. And, and, and Jesus only uses that as a launching place. He says, actually, salvation is from the Jews because salvation is through me. And the woman ends up coming to faith in Christ and chapter 4, verse 42 of John says that she says, I believe that she, we, she reveals that she knows that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Only Jesus. God had delivered them by his grace out of Egypt. He had warned them by his grace, and they rejected his warning. So finally, God did discipline them. There is a spiritual autopsy. Today finds you 
before your autopsy, right? I spoke at a funeral right here this week. And then uh, the next morning, the burial was down in West Milwaukee, and I rode along in the hearse. It's always an interesting experience. Went down there and gives me opportunity to, to think about death, maybe a little bit more than some. Do you ever go to a, to a cemetery when it's not actually a funeral? Does, sound, does that seem creepy to, to just go to a cemetery or drive through when it, it, it could be good? Ecclesiastes 7 says, first two verses, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. You're better off going to a funeral than a party. For death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. So while we're still alive, we're supposed to think seriously, and Second Kings has, of course, given us that opportunity. In the story, Scrooge woke up in time, and I just trust that God will find us wherever we are today and, and wake us up by His Spirit with whatever He has, has said to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so guilty of trying to merge what the world does with what we want. Uh, we, Lord, are sometimes blind to the fact that we are actually worshiping what the world does instead of worshiping you and you alone. And so, Lord, we want to be uh, serious in taking whatever warnings, using whatever voice you are using in our life, that we would no longer be stiff-necked people. And if we see traits in our life that have been there for 10 or 50 years, that we would, through these scriptures, have hope. We have the, your Holy Spirit living within us, in us, and so whatever you are warning us about, Lord, can be uh, transformed because we cannot depend on our own power, habits, but we depend upon you. And so please do your faithful work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.